I'll get us going, and I'll do so just by talking a little bit about uh, what I, I hope we can get done today, and then we'll, we'll see who is able to, to join in. And I think that, I, as I mentioned last week, we'll have a couple of people who are sort of jumping between this Zoom version and the in-person version, so uh, our little group will, will vary just a little bit. Um, but uh, having said that, so last week, I had talked a bit about, uh, I, I kind of read through some familiar portions of Genesis, um, the creation of uh, man, the man and the woman in the garden, uh, the expulsion of the man and the woman from the garden, uh, and then of course the story of Cain um, and how the, the shape his punishment took, which was again a, another kind of, uh, of exile or a second expulsion. And then reading about Cain's reaction, sort of thinking about how his, his choices as described to us uh, appears a kind of indignant refusal of the condition that, that has been assigned to him, right? A, uh, a willful settling instead of remaining a wanderer in the way that <coughs> God's curse implied. But then also noting that the narrator tells us uh, that uh, even in his efforts to, to settle, uh, to overcome the, the curse, as it were, he remained in the land of Nod, Nod meaning a uh, Hebrew word meaning wandering, and so I think it's a, it's an artful way of telling us that um, in his efforts Cain was ultimately frustrated. And what what I think is really interesting about this is the way in which Cain, uh, the story of Cain, I think has a kind of universal resonance, right? It's it's a way of talking about uh, our spiritual condition, our alienation, and and one way of responding to that alienation from God uh, is to sort of refuse uh, to accept that we are alienated and that we are lacking something that we cannot make for ourselves. And so Cain goes on famously, of course, to build a city. It is in his line that we get these um, notes about the flourishing of human culture. Uh, and then ultimately, I think this trajectory culminates in the, the building of the Tower of Babel. So, so there's one way of, of sort of responding to our spiritual alienation, and that is to find the things that we lack because we are alienated from God in what we can do for ourselves, in, in the world we can build for ourselves. And I, I read that as something relevant to our class because it, it shows us how the, um, the idea of, of physical alienation, being sort of expulsed from a place, uh, then has a kind of allegorical resonance in a in, in our spiritual alienation. In other words, the story of Cain happens at this sort of literal level, uh, but it becomes symbolic of something, uh, I don't want to necessarily say deeper, but also spiritual and moral. And uh, having, having gone through that then, I think we, we sort of got off on a conversation that took us back to the question of place and identity, uh, to which I'm gonna be happy to return uh, here in a little bit. But I, I wanted to open today by recalling that little walk through the biblical narrative um, and then just bringing it up again to see if there were any questions or comments um, from you all uh, as you thought about that. And if they're not, we can certainly move on. Um, but I, I somehow felt like there was a little more there that we might, might do well to, to talk about. I have a thought that just came to mind. Um, why is his punishment to wander when he uh, murdered his brother? Yeah, so that, I mean, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, the way I read it, um, there is this relationship in God's pronouncement between the, the ground that receives the blood of Abel and kind of bears witness in some respects to Abel 
uh, and then it is that ground from which um, it is that ground that now will not yield its fruit to Cain. And so, so he is condemned to wander, searching, I suppose, for sustenance, um, you know, searching for a way of, of making his way in the world. Uh, and so there's, there's something about the relationship, the, the literary relationship between, again, the ground that receives Abel's blood and then the punishment that is given to Cain who spilled it. Um, but again, I, th I, I really do, I don't want to, to overstate this, um, but I think that ultimately I, what, what's being conveyed to us is something about what, what happens to the human soul when it willfully cuts itself off from, from God, right? And so it, it, is, it is Cain's punishment, this, this physical punishment, right? This punishment in the physical realm of being a wanderer merely reflects uh, in a more concrete way his spiritual condition. Um, so I'm not sure how satisfying an answer that is to your specific question, David, but, but I think that's the, you know, the best that I can do. Given how it is presented to us, um, you know, the wording that's offered to us in the narrative. Are you saying, like, why is it that specific punishment, David? Like, compared to other things, or? Yeah, because, like, usually it's eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Um, but now it's, uh, you destroy human life, now you will wander. Um, but I'm, it makes sense that it, when you're talking about the, the ground crying out to God, um, or his blood from the ground, I'm remembering this, his blood mm -hmm. from the ground cries out to God. Yes, right. Um, and so that makes sense, the connection with the ground and the land. And then also, I, I think it's worth remembering the, um, the, the, the larger hermeneutical context here, which is that the, the audience, the intended audience, or the covenant community of Israel, um, we'll, we'll also read this in some respects as a, as a reflection on their own experience, uh, having been um, exiled, well, first of all, having been the experience of slavery, um, being um, descended from someone who was called out from a home and, and essentially called to be a wanderer himself in faith, uh, waiting for a land that is promised to him. And then, of course, um, being delivered from, from Egypt, from slavery, uh, and promised a land that will be a kind of home, uh, and a home that really sort of recapitulates the role of the garden, because it's not just a piece of land, but it's a piece of land where God will meet with his people through his presence in the tabernacle and later the temple. Um, and so that the, this idea of being expulsed from, from a land and then um, seeking to return, right, seeking to find a way back to not just the garden per se, but to, to God himself. So the two things run on a really um, interesting parallel track, right? The two things being the, the literal land that you're driven away from and seek to return to, uh, and then your own spiritual uh, condition, which can be described as a sort of being cast out from the presence of God and then being invited back in. The difference, of course, you know, as I suggested last week, is that what Cain and the tower builders represent to us uh, is an attempt to, uh, have what w to, to have what we lost when we cast God away without God, right? Without, without the act of repentance, without the act of return, um, and through, through ingenuity rather than grace. What is offered to us instead, of course, in the line of Abraham uh, is, is a return, but one that is um, provided to us by, by the work of God's grace, by his promise, by his, by his own work.
Are there any any other thoughts on that? Um, yeah. yeah. Hey, I was just reading, and it's really struck me for the first time how they still have a community with God, even though they're out of the garden. Um, and that Cain's first response to the punishment that God pronounces is, it's more than I can bear. You're driving me from the land where I will be hidden from your presence. Um, so there's still this like connection and right, even though right, Abraham hasn't been given the covenant yet, there's still the Yeah. God has this connection in that place with his people. Right, and and, and there's a, a thread of um of those who walk in faith as it were in between these two um these two sort of covenantal uh, dispensations um, that is between the garden and then of course Noah and then and after that Abraham but there are there's a line of those who do manage to walk in faith to know God and and, and Cain essentially cuts himself off from that but again all of this was simply to uh, to get at this idea that that our our displacement as it were I, we'll, we'll, we'll constantly be finding that to talk about place is to talk about more than just place, not less than, than place, but in some respects more than place. So even as I think about kind of outlining the direction in which we will go, um, and even in some of the conversations we've had here and in, in the in-person class, uh, it's hard to draw the line, for example, to, to sort of mark where does um, the influence of, of, a, of a people in a place end and the, and the influence of the place itself begin because those two things often are very closely intertwined and maybe it'll, it'll it'll be good here at this point to move to this question of place and identity which we did spend a fair amount of time talking about last week and, and so we don't have to belabor it too um too long but i i kept thinking about this question of of the relationship to place and 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 to our identity and to place um how the two work together and uh, it occurred to me that, that one very common feature of this, uh, historically anyway, has been our accent, right? And so that you, your accent, which sort of defines you, is, is literally sort of a part of you, right? It's, it's, it's how your speech is heard and picked up by others, um, the, the very sound of your voice, how that uh, has historically had a, a kind of regional variation. Um, so you, you think of a, a kind of a southern drawl, variations within southern accents, right, from North Carolina to Georgia, Mississippi, um, a kind of distinct sort of uh, New England patois or um, a kind of New York dialect, uh, Californian dialects, all these regions, even today, where I think we've, we've begun to lose a little bit of the distinctiveness of that, um, that kind of experience of, of accent, uh, nonetheless, we can sort of hear um, those and recognize them. And so is it, immediately my thought is, well, that's, that's a reflection of how your place marks you. So that if you grow up in the South um, and you move to New York, it's as if you can't escape your upbringing because it's in your voice, unless you work really hard, right, to overcome that. Um, this actually recalls an interesting aspect of my own personal history. Um, so I was, you know, as I've mentioned, uh, I'm the child of immigrants, and so my first language is Spanish, uh, and I grew up speaking Spanish in my home, and then um, I was sent to school, and the only English uh, that, that I was uh, equipped with to go into an English-speaking school in Miami um, was the question, you know, where's the bathroom? 
Uh, and and then it was the rest was up to me. Now the fascinating thing about that is that I think uh, by the end of the first uh, semester, my my first half year of school, when I was four years old, I was speaking English. Um, and so there's that uh, testament to to the ability to learn languages as a child and, and to the value of being just thrown into it. Um, but the other interesting thing is that I remember later on, um, maybe when I was uh, eight or, or or nine, working very consciously to eliminate a very common marker of a kind of Hispanic accent or Cuban accent um, that manifested itself in, in the inability to sort of pronounce the hard CH sound, um, which is, uh, I guess, not common in Spanish. And so a lot of um, Spanish speakers speaking English, uh, the, the hard CH sound will just come out as a soft SH sound. And I, for whatever reason, I became sort of aware of this. Um, and I literally remember as a child practicing to overcome that, to get rid of that. Um, and, and I won't go too much into whatever the psychology was at the time of what I was thinking I was doing. Um, but it's that, that effort, it, it was an interesting effort um, to change the way I sounded, I suppose, because even then I, I thought it, it reflected something about my identity, right? So all of this is just, again, to draw this, this tight connection between place and people and identity. Um, it, you know, one could say, well, it's, it's a mark of the people, not the place, that you have an accent because this is what you hear people speak. Uh, but, but it's impossible to separate the two. Um, I would not have picked up right, a southern accent uh, it, unless one was in the south. Not that I have one, but if I were to have one. Um, I have a, um, a friend who was in Edinburgh working his PhD when, when um, his um, oldest girl was born. And she grew up until she was about eight years old in Edinburgh and had a Scottish accent, even though his, his parents, um, one was American, the other like me was Cuban-American. Uh, and, and it was a reflection of where they lived. And that was just a part of who she was. Um, curiously, she lost that accent because I think you, you do tend to lose an accent like that um, unless you speak it past 12. And so now she doesn't have that, that accent anymore. But, but that, that's a way of, of reflecting on the way that uh, where you grow up sort of marks itself on you. Now, the, the interesting thing about that, and I mentioned this a moment ago, is that I, I don't think that that's quite as clearly the case anymore. Um, and so for a long time now, really going back to the, the era of mass communication, people have noted that there, there's a generic American accent that now tends to characterize a lot of the way a lot of people speak regardless of where they are from uh, geographically because it's sort of the, the the generic language of television right or the dialect of television or the dialect of the newscasters or um, those that you are likely to hear um, speaking in an unaffected way uh, through mass media and so the the, the dynamic there is, is that as a kind of mass culture encroaches upon local and regional cultures, it tends to um, work on these aspects of our identity, sort of change the way we think and the way we speak, um, the way we um, may even dress, or, or just all these various ways in which we manifest ourselves. There, we we get this, begin to get this tension, certainly in the early 20th century, uh, between the, the locality and its own local mores and customs and ways of life, forms of life, and then the way in which um, other distant localities sort of impinge upon uh, these, these regions and these areas, right? Or, and then finally, of course, with, with mass communication, it's sort of this generic, abstract um, form of, um, of American culture and speech that descends upon all regions 
um, of the United States. And so you have um, a, a, a loosening of sorts of what had been historically this very tight um, relationship between place and identity. And that's one of the ways in which I think this, I this idea of being uh, kind of uprooted. So part of what I wanted to get to today, right, this is um, um, you know, the third weekend. And by this point, I had wanted to begin to talk about uh, why place has become a kind of, a kind of problem for us. Um, in the same way that in the, the class on time, I had wanted to sort of reflect on, on why time has become a problem for us. And it's, a, again, a little harder, I think, maybe with place than with time, because we feel it less um, immediately, right? And I, I think I mentioned in the first class that every day we can feel that something is wrong in the way we relate to time. Um, but maybe the, the, the relationship to place is something a little bit more subtle and less obvious. But in a similar way, it seems to me that we, we have, we, we have a, a disordered relationship with place. And now, I'm not exactly clear, and I, I could not delineate to you right now, how exactly I would frame or define the nature of that disorder. And, and part of teaching this class, in fact, is an effort to kind of work through this and, and think through it, um, think about it with you as well. Um, but that, as with time, something is off in the way we relate to place. That there's a better way for us to order our relationship to place, and, and that we need to sort of explore what that may be. And one key to that is to recognize the the need for what Simone Weil calls roots, right? The sense of of place anchored, or excuse me, a sense of belonging anchored in place that stabilizes our identity, that stabilizes our relationships, right? So that we are not thrust into the mode of perpetual identity crisis which really is, is a way of saying that we're thrust into the mode of, of perpetual identity formation or performance. You know, we always have this burden to uh, create our identity, to perform our identity. Um, and I think that's a, a product, that's not a sort of universal human reality. I think that's, become a, that's a product of the peculiar conditions of modernity where the, the traditional anchors of identity are, are picked up, pulled up, uh, and again, that that the anchor that's pulled up is not unlike the root that is uprooted, right, that is pulled up as well. And so um, thinking about this really is, is part of what I want us to do. And so let me, again, pause there and ask if that has prompted any, any thoughts or questions on your mind, that a little excursion uh, with regards to the, the relationship between place and identity, reflecting on that once more. I wonder if if uh, one's exposure to travel has something to do with it, and the motive to want to fit in yeah. and to um, maybe uh, appreciate different environments that you have very little exposure to, unless you read a lot or you travel. Yeah, I, I think that motive to want to fit, to be a part of that that place and the people could even affect the, the vocabulary and the way you speak. Yeah. And uh, I find myself imagining living in other places and uh, accentuating the, the uh, usually it's the, the um, uh, topography or the climate that seems a lot more attractive than where I am stuck now. Mm -hmm. Stuck kind of gives away the... Yeah. The, the attitude right and uh, I, I would find um, going to another place both frightening 
challenging and attractive all at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that, that reminds me of this sort of eternal struggle between what sometimes we call, uh, you know, the, the cosmopolitanism, cosmopolitanism on the one hand and localism on the other, right? Um, and and there there is, I mean, there's this tension, even in, um, uh, Ivan Illich has this wonderful book about a 12th century monk named Hugh of St. Victor, uh, who kind of sits on an important hinge in the development of, of um, what we might think of as sort of the culture of learning or education in the West. And, and he, he talks about how for, for Hugh of St. Victor, uh, reading was a kind of pilgrimage um, <laughs> because you enter the text and you, you enter a different world, right? Whether it's the world of Roman antiquity or Greek antiquity um, in the case of, of uh, St. Victor, um, and we do the same thing. I mean, ed- education very often becomes a marker of, of identity, right? Um, and this whole uh, talk about speech even, right? Um, you know, it's not un- unusual, I think, for some to work out their accent in order to not betray not so much their place, but their class, right? As they, as they achieve upward mobility, um, they sort of self-consciously erase the markers of their lower class upbringing, um, and it's like, you know, it, it is as if um, there's this temptation that we, that we frame education uh, as a, a, a departure from or, or a rebellion against one's upbringing, right? And I have this in mind because I was just listening to an interview where the author was talking about Wendell Berry, um, who says somewhere that, you know, unfortunately for, for many people, uh, moving up means moving away, right? Yeah. That there's a sense that to... To improve yourself or your lot, you have to detach yourself from your home, from your family, from the place that you came. Um, you know, I, 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 I think I mentioned in the first class this line from Edith Wharton's Ethan Frome, um, where uh, one of the people, one of the characters says, you know, all the smart ones get out. Um, and it is, um, I think that's all too common, right? You know, you... Um, and and in that right, it, I, I suppose it, it one can have a, a different sort of attitude to that um, to that reality. But it is very often the fact I think that you you there's this pressure to to um, to become upwardly mobile, essentially by disavowing your upbringing, your your place of belonging. And maybe it's not a very strong sort of I must be different than my parents, or I must be different than than a small little backwards town that I came from. But it often practically turns into that. Um, and Tim, I gotta confess, I think I, I in talking there, I kind of lost the the, the initial uh, gist of your question. But did I did I um, come close there to kind of talking about some of the things you were um, you were mentioning? Yeah, I think so. I, I I've just um, always had this sense that um, I appreciate the the good things of other people's um, environments more so than I appreciate the one that I'm in. Yeah. And I have to make a concerted <clears throat> effort to look for the the uh, the small things that make this a desirable place and yeah. put aside the idea that I'm missing out somehow by not living yeah. in uh, the Rockies or on the coast or yeah. in a, uh, uh, a wooded area or a plains. Uh, right. They all have benefits that supersede my ability to appreciate them firsthand i have to do so in a remote sort of a way and and it is a thin i mean there's there's um um 
what's the word I'm looking for? What's the phrase I'm looking for here, right? There's, um, there's an interesting balance there, right? Because I think there, there is a danger in a very narrow provincialism, right? Where, where you simply reflect, unthinkingly reflect the, the prejudices of your place um, in ways that uh, from, from a moral or even spiritual perspective um, we can see as being um, inappropriate or, or, or in need of change. And so, and, and as you said, it's not a matter of not appreciating what one sees in another place, right? The, the, every place has its own unique beauties and charms and um, things that will kind of awaken um, the, the appreciation of, of, of the human being. And, and so there is, there's this way of, of sort of belonging to place, I suppose, in, which doesn't kind of become a, a self-righteousness or a, um, a pride that looks down upon others from other regions, right? Um, and at the same time, doesn't, doesn't refuse to recognize the value of other places or other peoples or other cultures. And so the, the, I suppose there, there are ways of going wrong with both um, a, an, an affection for a local place, a, a locality, and with a desire for sort of the fruits of cosmopolitanism, that larger experience of the world. I think, let me um, share at this point um, one of these quotes that I had actually pulled for last week, um, but I never, we never did quite get to it. So let me bring this up. And this is, I'll confess that I have no, um, well, let me just read it to you. And then I'll, I'll say that this is a, a challenging quote for me. Uh, it's this one right here um, by Hilaire Belloc, who's a writer, a good friend of, of G.K. Chesterton's uh, early 20, late eight, 19th, early 20th century writer. And he says this, he says, look, you good, good people all, in your little passage through the daylight, get to see as many hills and buildings and rivers, fields, books, men, horses, ships, and precious stones as you possibly, as you can possibly manage to do. Or, <laughs> this is such a dramatic or, or, or else stay in one village and marry in it and die there. For one of these two fates is the best fate for every man, either to be what I have been, a wanderer with all the bitterness of it, or to stay home and hear in one's garden the voice of God. So I've, I've, I've always been struck by this, um, by this passage. Uh, I couldn't even tell you at one point where I picked this up from. Um, Hilaire Belloc was English like Chesterton. Um, and, and what strikes me about this is how he seems to be saying, and, and you can tell me if you read this differently, but he seems to be saying there are these two very different ways of life. Um, and, and one of them is the best for everyone, right? Um, it, it, and, and maybe we can reflect on this for a moment, because what, what I've, there's something of the truth to this. Uh, there's some truth to this, I think. Uh, and, and I suppose the question is just how we think about it or how we might think about applying it or, or, or how we judge between these two fates that he says is, you know, one of which is the best fate for every man. And I think we are immediately, um, the, the, the average American, I would say, is sort of immediately attracted to the former of these two fates, right? Get out, see the world, experience it, right? Um, fill your Instagram with as many exotic places and locations as you can possibly manage to do. Um, and and there's, there's something that you know, is immediately kind of attractive about that, one might say. Um, 
I think the other one we may have to work a little harder to see the value in. But but to, to Bellock's credit, he puts it here in such a way um, that I think it almost makes makes the, the, the power of it very attractive, right? To, to stay in a village, marry in it, die there, um, and to, or as he says later, right, to stay home and hear in one's garden the voice of God. Um, I'm, uh, I'm interested in just sort of talking about this. What, what do you think about this, uh, about that line? Or the, that, the whole paragraph, I should say. Yeah, I think that the one thing that does tie a person to a place is the people that are there. The person you marry, the family that might arise from that union. Uh, and that can, can tie you to a place in ways that perhaps uh, geography and, and culture doesn't that will will perhaps satisfy the need for for a wanderlust yeah i thought that was really uh i don't know uh beautiful and in both ways looking at it and i sort of do i really appreciate what y'all are saying about like the danger of provincialism but also like the the ditch of uh, cosmopolitan snobbery. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, right, self-righteous right. cosmopolitanism. Yeah. I guess or yes, who is geographical snobbery instead of chronological. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah I, I feel a lot of those. Um, well, yeah, the the tension between those two. Um, I think for me, I'm more drawn to the the latter. Growing up in a place, but at the same time, I've moved around. Growing up in a place where my family's lived for a while, um, I definitely found myself uh, torn between those two in a way. So, uh, but yeah, I was also going to say um, I had to look this up when Tim was talking about the travel aspect, and I think this sort of also speaks to this quote. Uh, I heard this thing a pilot wrote this book about traveling a while ago, and he has this term called. Uh, place lag rather than mm. jet lag. He says, like, biologically, we're not, uh, or evolutionarily, it's really hard for us to adjust to our modern global jet setting, like being in mm. one part of the world in the morning and then the other in the afternoon. And all, yeah. all of a sudden, he just talks about, like, how hard that was. And, mm. and I think about that, and I think about, like, um, Whenever I go to a new city, like what's the first thing I look for is like a Starbucks or, <laughs> or a chain thing that's like the same everywhere. Yeah. If I had amnesia, I woke up, I, I wouldn't know where I am because they're all the same. And yeah. it's like, that's kind of a part of it too that I, um, I guess the, like you were saying, Tim, there's kind of a difficulty in traveling and being in a new place that's kind of scary and like taking the time to find what's unique about it can be kind of hard and, and difficult. So, so yeah, I, yeah, the discussion has been really helpful for me to think mm. through those. The, the, the Starbucks, the point about the Starbucks, right, that um, w one of the things that, that I had wanted to, to think about under the heading of why is it hard for us to sort of gain a sense of place, um, your Starbucks example works um, in a couple of ways on that, I suppose, because w one of the things that, that I had uh, hoped we would comment on is that... Um, Places have, have, have ten, there's a tendency for a place to lose its distinctiveness, all right? Um, and, I, and I think we see this um, in the example of, of Gainesville even, right? Uh, and the, the article that I began our first class with, 
Um, the, the apartments that are going up here are being built by a company who builds exactly the same kinds of apartments, but exactly the same kind of design in whatever American city they happen to build apartments in, right? Um, and what it has replaced uh, is, um, among other things, right, a, um, a restaurant that, that was distinct, it was unique, it wasn't a chain, um, it had a history in Gainesville, uh, people uh, would, would associate it with this place in a unique way, right? Um, and then the tendency, of course, this is an old story right now, by, by, by now, it, it, the tendency of, of national chains to displace um, local shops, um, local restaurants, um, and, and all, right, generally all in the service of, of, of being uh, included in, in a national and now global economy. Um, for the sake of partaking in this sort of global market. Um, and, and there's um, one of the consequences, right, there are many kinds of consequences uh, for labor, for economic prosperity of the region, um, for inequality. Uh, but I think one of, one of the consequences is also kind of goes to this, this uh, uh, almost psychological experience of a place. Um, and it's... Um, and, the, and, the, and losing a sense that a place has its own character, that has its own identity, right? And, and what we get instead is this ability to sort of wake up almost anywhere and, <laughs> and go to a place that we are familiar and comfortable in, right? Which is an inclination, I think, right? It's a perfectly sound inclination. Uh, one can understand it. Um, but it, yeah, again, it always strikes me that um, it's, it's not just even that the, I can find the same stores in pretty much any major American city and minor and even small uh, towns, uh, but it's that they're all even sort of configured in the same way. Um, and they all, all the, the malls in which we encounter them increasingly look the same, right? Um, and, and even um, to some extent, the, the loss of, of um, when we think of especially of, of chain restaurants, the loss of, of local um, a local food experience, uh, which becomes part of that as well. So there are many ways in which we can sort of multiply this basic pattern, right, or find multiple examples of this basic pattern. Um, but but the end result is a kind of a, a weakening of our, a weakening of the way in which a place can up manifest itself as distinct and unique um, and draw our affections in that way. Does that make sense? I don't know, Madison, if that kind of, um, yeah. Yeah. I also think if I can step in, like, yeah, um, like exactly what you're talking about is like it contributes to the geographical restlessness because it's like, oh, you know, this place is like it's losing some of its identity, and so of course you're gonna want to go somewhere else where like the smaller differences like mean more because everything's becoming the like kind of equalized mm -hmm. like there's starbucks everywhere um it looks the same and so the small changes like me think might mean more does that make sense yeah let me riff on that and tell me if i'm i'm tracking with you because what what i what i what what occurs to me in this is that one of the results is that we become um sort of how to put it um so I, I'm tempted to put it this way. Um, we, we become sort of quasi-hipsters of place, right? The, 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 it's, this is now very dated. It feels very 2010 to, to be speaking about uh, the sort of hipster sensibility. 
Um, but part of it, I think, arose out of a dissatisfaction, a genuine dissatisfaction with the sameness and blandness of um, these sort of uh, corporate multinational realities that are dominating our experience, right? And so you're, you're looking for the authentic, right? Something that that word, authenticity, I think, becomes this holy grail. Um, and we're looking for something authentic. And as soon as it becomes popular, it loses this, whatever this aura of authenticity happens to be. And so we have to go look for the even more authentic band and the even more authentic restaurant that nobody has ever heard of to sort of preserve um, that, that whatever it is that, that we're looking for. So it's a kind of interesting feedback loop there, right? Because on the one hand, um, what is happening is, is I think we are, we are craving that distinctness. We are dissatisfied with the, um, the products of consumer culture that don't really satisfy our needs. They only really kind of generate more and more needs and desires. And so we're looking for something more distinct and um, uh, something less processed, uh, not just in terms of food, right, but just in terms of even places that we exhibit, something less, something that has more character to it. We use all these different kind of metaphors to speak about this thing we're looking <laughs> for, right? Um, and, and so not having found it in our place, because our place has been overwhelmed by it, then we go searching for it. And so it, it leads to the very condition, right, part of the very condition that we're seeking to overcome. Um, and, and then it does something interesting to, our, to, to what it is that we're looking for, because we become unintentionally the very same kinds of consumers that we're trying to avoid ourselves being, right? We're trying to kind of get out of the, the, the rut of, because now we become sort of connoisseurs of the authentic, right? And the authentic just becomes another commodity. And um, the, the, you know, the, the, the marketplace knows nothing more than how to turn a desire into a commodity, right? And so that just becomes a way of, of marketing. And then we become, we become, as it were, we're doubling down on the very kind of dynamics that we're trying to escape. Does that make sense? Um, so I appreciate the nodding heads, yeah. <laughs> um, one, one example of that I've seen is um, like in tourism or uh, kind of there's this idea of like uh, last settler syndrome and you see this a lot in like Florida when it was growing like people go to one place because it's beautiful it's paradise and then you know when more really people try to come they say no, 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 you're going to ruin yeah, it. Like, yeah. I can right. here, but, you know, you can't. So yeah. <laughs> in some ways, it's very Yeah, that, that is absolutely the case. Um, let me do this. We have um, just under 10 minutes to go here, and there was one other, uh, I, and, and I'm happy to do this. So just say, here's this interesting, thoughtful idea. Let's talk about this for a little bit. Um, without necessarily having a place we're going to land on. There's one more There's one more quote that I had exerted um, that I wanted to share with you all. So let me do that. Let me share my screen here. And um, this is um, down here. This is from a letter that C.S. Lewis wrote. And in it, he's talking about a conversation he has with J.R.R. Tolkien, right? So very familiar um, figures to us in, in the Christian literary world. So here's what Lewis writes. Tolkien once remarked to me that the feeling about home must have been quite different in the days when the family fed on the produce of the same few miles of country for six generations. 
and that perhaps this was why they saw nymphs in the fountains and dryads in the woods. They were not mistaken, for there was a sense, there was in a sense a real, not metaphorical connection between them and the countryside. What had been earth and air and later corn and later still bread really was in them. We, of course, who live on a standardized international diet, you may have had Canadian flour, English meat, Scotch oatmeal, African origins, and Australian wine today, are really artificial beings and have no connection save in sentiment with any place on earth. We are synthetic men, uprooted. The strength of the hills is not ours. So that's another, intru- I was really struck when I read that. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the uh, provocative points about it is, and you can, I you know, totally believe Tolkien saying this, right, that um, no wonder we can't see the fairies anymore, right? Um, and, and that is, in a sense, because we, we have broken the link, severed the link a very literal link, right, between place and the body. Uh, and, and this is, uh, I forget the date of this letter, right, but it, it obviously uh, will be prior to 1963 when Lewis died. I think it's in the 1950s, maybe a little bit earlier. Um, and so already then, you can hear in Lewis sort of a similar complaint to the one that we've been making, right, a similar observation at least, right, that um, we, we suffer from this sort of standardization um, of not only shops and stores and uh, and places but even of diet right that you where what we eat doesn't necessarily come from where we live now you know granted there's been um i think i don't know how i would date that uh maybe you all would know better than i but i'd say certainly within the last uh decade maybe even 15 years or so there's been an attempt to overcome this right to uh look for um locally sourced um foods to and, and it is because there has been I think a resurgence of localism and so you know we can go to a farmer's market um, that uh, features produce from from our locality uh, of course I think that by and large our, our diet unless we've made a very very um, uh, strenuous effort to uh, overcome this still reflects the reality that Lewis described here if, if anything it's more varied um, and I don't I don't want to on the one hand, I don't. I want to say, I, I, you know, I don't really think that if we were, you know, sort of living on the same plot of land for generations and eating the the, the uh, food from that same plot of land for generations, that we would in fact see dryads in the woods or anything of the sort. Um, although I wouldn't, you know, by the same token, be too interested in contesting Lewis. Um, but but there is there's something he's getting at, of course, rather poetically here, which again speaks to um, this question of whether or not we have a, a right relationship. Uh, to the land, and to, and to the, by the land, meaning simply the, the place in which we live. Um, so let me, yeah, f- let's wrap up with some thoughts on, on this, um, this observation by Lewis, and, and what, what did it bring to your mind? I think it's interesting. Um, two things come to mind. One is this concept I've been thinking of for a while, um, that you will be, you will become what you are. Hmm. Um, and it's like, yeah, what I really mean is uh, that's, that's more of a theological concept that I kind of came up with, and I want to see if anyone else has thought about it. But then, um, in this immediate sense, it's making me think of the place where you reside is, you know, this thing, you are what you eat, but mm-hmm. the place where you reside is what you become. Mm-hmm. And so, from a nutrient standpoint, uh, I study science, for those yeah. who don't know. 
Um, it's like literally the items and um, material substance that you take in makes up your body then mm -hmm. because it restores. That's what restores the mm -hmm. aspects of your different parts of your body um, and upkeeps it. Mm -hmm. um, so that was one thing. The other thing was that we... Is it that we are now artificial or that we are or mixed as in we are in parts the Scottish oats and we are in parts the African oranges and so we are many lands put together and so those two things were what yeah. came to mind yeah that's an interesting distinction um, and then I suppose you know even uh, to, to further complicate it um, one would now have to talk about um, you know what difference it means that some of our food is sort of genetically engineered um, rather than just being sourced from different places um, and again I, I don't I don't know how much you know I want to press the details of this um, but it, it was another way of, of framing this question of of belonging and in a really literal way right and as you say uh, David I think it is important for us to think about the this principle and I forget if you put it exactly like this, but that that we are who we are becoming is that is that a general? Just a w we become who we are. Was, yeah, we will. Uh, I think what I said was I don't know if I said who, um, but I meant you will um, you will become what you are. Um, so that's that that's a, another thing I'm thinking about. Yeah. It's kind of me trying to answer um, the tension between free will and predestination. Interesting. <laughs> So, so you'll become what you are, right? So that you eventually work out sort of some uh, essential principle of, of self or something of the sort. Um, yes, and, and then I, for the, I also usually add to that, but you actually can change. And so for me, it's this thing that relates to Romans when yeah. Paul talks okay. about, like, they were acting this way, and so yeah. God gave them over to yeah. what they were already doing. Right. Um, but then there's also the sense of you actually can change. Yeah. And so it's, it's this belief I have that, like, whatever you are, in the slightest bit pursuing um like god will work in you to like allow you to continue to become that way mm -hmm. but then you really can't change though if you change like and this is like of course i haven't really looked up any other um deal anyone else if yeah. they're thinking this but like if you change even slightly enough god will continue to allow you to move you in that direction also yeah so that's kind of that um thinking but it's i yeah i didn't mean to it was just another way that i could use the phrase right that's what I wanted to say. yeah i mean that's an interesting idea in its own right uh and I, and I think there's definitely something to that because it seems to me like in one sense you're talking about your desires right so what you desire is drawing you and and as long as you pursue that you will become something in accord with with the object of that desire but if you shift the desire then you continue to become something but again that's yeah that's an interesting an interesting idea um i will say here just to wrap us up um the the idea that we we are people who are becoming right in some sense and that perhaps as we become older there's less becoming happening i'm not sure uh but but that we are always sort of becoming and that we we are a product of the many forces that are sort of acting upon us. We're not necessarily um, determined. I like to the, the, to make a distinction between being determined and being conditioned. 
Um, you know, to be determined means that I, I essentially have no uh, say in the matter, right? Um, I become a kind of um, uh, the end result of a formula. If you add my genetic code and my upbringing and my socioeconomic status, it yields me, right, as if, as if nothing else mattered and it was very deterministic. I don't quite think that's right, but I, I, I think it is definitely the case that we are conditioned, which is to say that we are influenced, right? There's a, there's a formative power at work uh, given our, our family upbringing, the place where we live, our education. Um, and so part of the question I suppose we've been sort of circling around is this question of the relationship between place and identity. In other words, how are we formed by place? Um, and I, I want us to leave, us leave with the thought that yes, it has to do with the people in that place. I think that's really a, a, an important part of that. Um, but that there is also something about the uniqueness of the place itself um, that that becomes part of that um, of that influence, right? Whether it's the land uh, itself, the the climate, um, the 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 geography, the topography of the place, they yield a different experience, a different um, sort of imaginative thought world, even right. Um, uh, it, it, it works on us in ways that are maybe, you know, again, very subtle, but I think important, uh, so that the, the place marks us, not just because it is the, the, the collector of the people who have influenced us, but also because it has its own unique features that have all the while been shaping how we perceive the world, uh, shaping our affections, what we love, right, what has become familiar to us as part of what we love, part of what we desire. Um, its unique challenges, the, the aspects of the natural world that reveal, to our, reveal themselves to us in a particular place, um, draw our interest in certain ways, shape our hobbies in certain ways. There are just many ways in which the unique features of a place shape us. Now, of course, the live question, I think, for us is the degree to which the kind of standardization of experience uh, that we've been discussing, particularly in sort of urban, modern settings, um, how does that change that way in which place ordinarily stamps us uh, with its with its influence. So I'll, I'll leave us with that thought um, or question here for today and then um, we'll pick up again next week. Thank you all for, for joining again. Uh, pleasure to have you. Feel free to email um, at any point if you have a question or comment or want to talk about something and, uh, and certainly email if you want to get together here at uh, Pascal's at some point. Be happy to chat with you in person too.